jam-packed podcast for you all here on Monday, January 3rd, first podcast of the year 2022. It's Pete Forsey. That's my name. The show is the podcast spelled weird with a four, not a D. Share with your friends. Hit the like button, the subscribe button, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get it. We are on there. Your friends and fam can find us there. The NFL never disappoints, whether it's the reality television aspect to it, whether it's the games. We got playoffs coming up. The first ever week 18 of the NFL had some great games in the early window there yesterday on Sunday. Got a pretty putrid game here on Monday night. Ben Roethlisberger, maybe his last game at Heinz Field, but no implications there. Got to talk about everything that happened with Antonio Brown, as well as the officials in the Bengals Chiefs game. Let's get to it. It's episode 69 of the podcast. I said it at the time when this podcast was taking lift off. Maybe it you know, still is on the ground here. I know we're small potatoes, but appreciate everybody that tunes in every Monday or Tuesday morning to listen to what I have to say. Officials and blaming them for the outcome of a game always will be for losers. It's always going to be a cheap move. Winners, they never say anything about the officiating. Seems to always be good with them. And I worked for the Kansas City Chiefs. I used to take calls and listen to that fan base. They are one of the most guilty of blaming officials for the outcomes of their games. Always. It happened last year in the Super Bowl. It happened yesterday in Cincinnati. Yeah, was there suspect officiating? I'm not even denying that. Sure. Yeah, they, they, they missed some calls. They blew some. It was pretty poor out there. But you know what also happened in that game? Jamar Chase went bananas in the second half. Maybe the Chiefs should have thought about doubling him. The Chiefs also also scored three points in 30 minutes. That's why they lost the football game. The reason we blame officials is, one, that's easy for us to understand. We understand when a missed call is made as opposed to the X's and O's of football. And I'm not some guru when it comes to the schematics, and I'm no Andy Reid or Zach Taylor. However, three points in 30 minutes, Jamar Chase and the numbers he put up in the second half, it's pretty abundantly clear the Chiefs lost the game because of that. Poor officiating, it's going to happen every single game. We saw in the Dallas and Arizona game. If you can't overcome missed calls and poor officiating, again, in theory, shouldn't happen, but it does. Just the way that the game works. If you can't overcome it, you're going to be on the outside looking in most of the time. New England Patriots, I never see them complaining to the league office about officiating. They seem to win a lot of games. Just punch their ticket to the playoffs again. This happens only at the end of the game as well. I think we all can agree on that. It's always the fourth quarter. It's always within two minutes left in the game because we as humans, we can sequentially play out the game in our mind. That's why we get upset. Had this not happened, X, Y, and Z would have happened and this team would have won the game instead of that team. But in the first quarter, had the officials missed the call with Cincinnati, I don't think anybody would be up in arms about this. They would have realized there's more time to correct it, and then it would have been on the team. Every minute counts, though. Every yard counts, right? Game of inches. So why would a call in the fourth quarter matter more than in the first quarter? Wrong is wrong, right? But we as humans only get upset if it's in the fourth quarter, because that's what we can compute. That's what can register in our minds. I feel sorry for those that blame officials. It's really a scapegoat. It's you wanting to point the finger instead of understanding that the players and coaches always lose the game 
I'm not saying that officiating can't have an effect on it, but if you blame them solely as to why the Chiefs lost yesterday, you live in a sad, sorry world, and I hope you exit that uh, as soon as you can. Maybe the biggest thing outside of the outrage from the media on what Bruce Arians had to say about Antonio Brown exiting the the game, uh, I guess it was at halftime, middle of the game. We all saw it. I don't have to rehash it for you. The most interesting and confounding thing is what Tom Brady had to say. I mean, I, I don't agree with Brady about compassion and providing empathy in a situation like that. I mean, unless you know something that we don't, no. It's straight up pretty simple. Antonio Brown is an asshole. Always has been. We knew it from Facebook Live back, I guess it's going on five years now, when he did that in 2017 before a playoff game against the Patriots. Every action since then has led us to this. I don't feel sorry for the guy one bit. He did the most disgusting thing you can do. You quit on your team in front of the crowd during an NFL game, took off your shoulder pads, and went to the Uber to catch a ride to the plane. And so Bruce Arians is obviously asked about it post-game, and he just says that he's no longer a buck, and I'm only talking about the guys that helped us win the game. Perfectly acceptable answer, if you ask me. I don't fucking need to know why Antonio Brown was cut. The man took off his shoulder pads and his helmet, obviously, and his uh, uh, shirt and walked and waved and galloped out of the stadium at MetLife against the Jets. I know why he was cut. I don't understand why the media feels like they always deserve something. Coaches don't have to give you information if they don't want to. This isn't the president of the United States. We know why Bruce Arians stuck with Antonio Brown. He didn't see unvaccination uh, or uh, a forge of the vaccination card as a serious offense. Neither does anybody else, except for PC culture, which the morality police that is the media feels like they always have to uphold that. Nobody gives a fuck about a vaccination card being forged. Antonio Brown was capable of what he did yesterday on Sunday prior to the forged card. And you didn't burn credibility with me, Bruce Arians, by keeping him on the team. I would have done the same damn thing. And you know what? People that are saying that he made a fool out of Arians, I'm pretty sure Antonio Brown put a ring on his finger last year. You guys are the fools. He won them a Super Bowl. He was going to help him win a Super Bowl this year, and then we realized, okay, here come the old shenanigans. Bye-bye, get off the field. And sure enough, he did that. He took it to heart, and now he's, I don't know, back at his home in Miami. Now, does he play again? I, I don't put it past, folks. Not not in society today. We're, we're often way too forgetful, and like I had uh, presumed, you know, this is turning into a mental health thing, which mental health's a serious deal, but it's also become a crutch for athletes like a Ben Simmons, uh, countless other athletes. Now it's just something that, you know, your franchise has to take seriously or otherwise they look like assholes and, and insensitive. That's what's going to happen with Antonio Brown. He's going to get well. He's going to team up with Tony Robbins again and and some other renowned specialist that's going to help him. And he'll get another shot probably because he's still a really productive player. And, you know, when, when you are talented, you get another shot, especially when people are, are, are relating to you like something like mental health. So I don't put it past him that he'll get another shot. I think it's unlikely, uh, but that's the society we live in today. And wow, that was really something what we witnessed at MetLife. Talking about the other side of the field with the Bengals 
and uh, that Chiefs game. I tell you what, Jamar Chase, I thought Panay Sewell would have been the better pick for Cincinnati. They have proven that to, to not be the case. This guy is absolute dynamite. He's exploding on the field. Uh, this is going to be a big connection, Chase to Burrow, for you know the next 10, 12 years. It's, uh, it's going to be the new Ryan, Julio Jones, maybe even better. Because Joe Burrow, I watch him. And he's getting some MVP votes now. I've never really understood that because if you only get one vote, you know why would you vote for Burrow over Brady or, or, or Rodgers? The body of work just isn't there. But he's been playing like an MVP the last two weeks, back-to-back, 400-yard games. Uh, I think he's the only one to do that. There's like two total uh, in the NFL outside of Joe Burrow. So he, he's lighting the world on fire. And every time I watch this guy play, it's like feel. The guy just has feel feel for the quarterback position anytime he's in the pocket and there's pressure bearing down on him the Bengals they've given up the most sacks in the NFL I think it's in the in the 40s maybe uh, now in the 50s now the, the guy just knows how to escape he knows how to keep his eyes downfield has vision on who to throw to gifted enough passer I don't even think he has like a cannon he just knows how to pass the football and get us to the open guy namely number one and you know, it's a situation I thought about after that win. Are they Super Bowl contenders? Immediately I said no. Then I thought about it, and I realized, you know, the Pats, they looked ugly for two weeks, and then they dominated the Jaguars. And they're the Jaguars, but they put 50 points on the on the scoreboard. And the Cowboys, they put 50 points on the scoreboard, and then they looked awful last week. And they played the Arizona Cardinals, and they got that W. And prior to that, Arizona looked awful for three weeks before they played the Cowboys. So... You know, what I'm trying to get at is this league this year, you just don't know what's going to happen. There's no top threat in the AFC. The Bills blew out uh, the Falcons late, and they have the capability of blowing out anyone. But when it becomes a physical grudge match, if they have to face the Titans, who might be locking up the number one seed against the Texans here this week in the first ever Week 18, you know, you just don't even know if you'll face the Bills. So, yeah, I, I think the Bengals could be Super Bowl threats. Not based off talent and just their viability as the team, but the rest of the field in the AFC, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to get each week. It's pretty fascinating, actually. And, you know, in Cincinnati, when you got someone like Burrow, you're you're always going to have a chance. Not because he, he's just so wow, but he, he just understands situational football. It, it's not the sheer physical gifts like you would look at with a uh, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes. It's really his idea of knowing what to do. The guy's a smart football player, and if they ever get an offensive line around this guy, I imagine with the salary cap and the availability that they'll be able to spend in the offseason along with draft picks, they're going to have a, a revamped offensive line. You know, Cincinnati, they're going to be a threat in the AFC for years to come. I don't know how it would work in any other profession trading for the rights to, to have you work for them. I know it can happen with managers. Uh, it cannot happen with broadcasters. I remember uh, Al Michaels, I think it was ESPN, wanted to trade for him, or, or maybe it was uh, CBS. But when you are traded for a, a bounty of picks in the NFL, like Matthew Stafford was uh, from the Rams, or to the Rams from the Lions, you got to feel a sense of pressure heading into the beginning of the season. And then if you start to play bad, immediately after that. And Matthew Stafford has looked as bad as it can get during a game, and then all of a sudden flipped the switch and he looks great. His Rams got the victory against Baltimore. 
starting Tyler Huntley, it should not have been that close, but they played bad football the first half. And, And if you watch the game and just look at him play, you can tell that this guy is feeling the pressure to, to perform at a high level and to limit the mistakes. And it's only causing him to make more mistakes. And, and it begs the question of how, you know, how big of a threat are these Rams in the playoffs? Because they cannot have first halves like this and expect to go deep and, and make it to the Super Bowl. But yeah, maybe you can win a game. Yeah, you beat the Ravens. Maybe you could do that for a half of football in the wild card round and then advance to the next round. But you can't do that for, for four straight games. No way. Can't happen. You'll prove that you're not the best team out there. So can Stafford turn it on? This is a huge test and a big indicator, a pivotal moment on how we're going to view Matthew Stafford for the back half of his career. He's been in the league since 2009, and he's really probably got you know 12 years left just given how you know quarterbacks are aging. The back half of his career is going to be viewed largely how he does in this playoff, in this playoff field, because he really needs to turn it on. He's shown that he's capable of playing flawless football and scoring at any point or any uh, any field position that the Rams are given, but he's got to cut down on these turnovers, and he's doing it when the Rams are backed up inside their own 20, and, and, he, and he's got five interceptions returned for TDs like they they come at the worst time for Los Angeles how's it going to happen I don't know I think he's probably playing hurt he's a tough SOB and always has been there have been coaches uh I know his offensive coordinators in Detroit the ones that uh you know came and went uh they have just you know been head over heels with how this guy has just suited up every day in Detroit uh and played football and he's doing it again here in Los Angeles so we're gonna see. Uh, we're gonna learn a lot about Matthew Stafford uh, in, in these next few weeks, starting in Week 18 uh, and into the playoffs. Is just how we're gonna view his career when it's all said and done. Count me among those that thought Nick Sirianni would last one year in Philadelphia. I saw that press conference where he's nervous and talking to the media, and I thought, oh my gosh, this guy is in completely in over his head and uh the Lurie family and Howie Roseman really uh they stretched this one far in hiring Sirianni but Eagles they're they're in the playoffs now and yeah they're the bottom seed and yeah they're probably not a good team not someone uh that can go deep into the postseason they have a chance to knock someone off ultimately they're a very limited squad but you got to give credit to what they've done their team building philosophy even before the Sirianni hire but they've doubled down on it and it's smart You invest in the offensive and defensive lines. That's what you do. People think because it's a passing league here, you can get away with average or maybe even subpar uh, trench play. No, you can't. Because when it's all said and done over the course of a 17-game schedule, it used to be 16-game, you need to be able to play on the lines, in bad weather, toughness. When people are hurt, when people are out of shape, Playing in the trenches on the defensive line and offensive lines, who's in better shape, who's got better pad level, that's what wins in December and January. That's why the Eagles, I think it's 7 of 8 that they've won, that's why they're in the playoffs. They invested on both sides of the ball. They got average skill positions. Uh, they're you know they pretty penalized team. I think it's like fifth, uh, fifth worst in the league. And they got pretty subpar quarterback play, but they asked their quarterback to do very limited number of uh, uh, passes, and he completes those. And, you know, I will say 
he does a better job than I thought he would uh, coming out of the draft. But, you know, Philadelphia put their money and their resources exactly where they needed to be. And in addition, they also know how to scheme to their players. A lot of coaches say that they always fit their playbook exactly to the personnel that they have. But then when it comes time to, you know, make plays in tough games and tight situations, they revert back to their comfort zone. Not the Eagles. Not the Eagles. They have adapted. They're a running team. They take uh, calculated shots in the air. Uh, and they just really rely on playing good defense and pressuring the quarterback to get a negative play and to limit uh, touchdowns. They give up some yards, but to limit touchdowns. So, you know, I I think, are are they the team that nobody wants to play in the playoffs? I don't know about that. I don't think they're a great team. But in this uh, seven-conference representation with seven teams in each conference in the playoffs, I definitely got to give them credit for getting them this far because they did it the right way and investing in the offensive and defensive lines. Probably going to see our last Ben Roethlisberger game tonight. Uh, Cleveland visiting the Steelers at Heinz Field. I got the uh, pregame footage from the worldwide leader going on right now and wanted to talk about just Big Ben. And, you know, he's been really special. I, I think everybody seems to get that because he went to all the Super Bowls. But really, when, when you look at the type of player that he is, I, I don't know how many more we'll, we'll see. Yeah, there are big physical guys like him. But the ones that can evade and manipulate the defense uh, from a passing perspective, I, I don't know if there's that many guys that, uh, one, get the coaching in the NFL today. They really dumb things down and just ask guys to make very simple passes because the receivers aren't as good and aren't as refined uh, as far as their route trees. So part of that is on the uh, the company that a quarterback keeps today. But Big Ben is a very, very smart passer. And, you know, the way he used to manipulate safeties and quarterbacks with the pump fake and, uh, you know, uh, bouncing off defensive, end that, defensive ends that were bearing in on him, I don't know how much we'll see that again. He, he's a guy that, you know, had those... You know, allegations that happened in 2009, 2010 happened today. Man, I don't know if the Steelers could have looked the other way twice. You know, 2009, 2010, not that long ago, but society certainly has changed. And I don't know if he would have survived those if those happened in, say, you know, 2018, 2019. Because uh, the way the world is with the internet and the way owners have to respond to what the public says on those platforms it's a hell of a lot different. But I'll always remember Big Ben for that play against the Seahawks in uh, Detroit for that Super Bowl. Going into the end zone, did he score, did he not? Depends on who you ask. But that was always my signature Big Ben moment, uh, along with playing against Arizona uh, and really just the you know entire entirety of that game against the Arizona Cardinals. But Big Ben, hell of a career, first ballot Hall of Famer along with the rest of the 2004 quarterback class. I would not put Eli in. I know he's going to get in, but just amazing to, to really look at 2004 and the three quarterbacks that, that came out of that draft class. Every single one of them is going to the Hall of Fame, and it's really a changing of the guard here, except for Brady, as far as those quarterbacks that we watched in the early 2000s. As for what is next, difficult to say. I know Mason Rudolph had a year added to his contract. I don't know how you go into the year with Mason Rudolph. He's been awful when he's played plenty of the games. I know that they love him as a backup for whatever reason. That's a hard sell 
just to go with an in-house option and not even explore what's out there as far as trade. Jimmy Garoppolo might be available. Obviously, we've heard the stuff with Russell Wilson, maybe even Aaron Rodgers. Not saying you got to take the big swing on anything. They don't have that much money to spend as far as the cap. And obviously, the uh, quarterback options in the draft are not that great. And I'm not a huge proponent of just taking a swing to see if you hit a home run. Because as we know with these quarterbacks in the draft, yeah, for every Joe Burrow out there, there's a Tua. And Tua, look, there's a spot for him in the league, but we all know he's not going to be Justin Herbert. Okay, when you have all those opportunities to take a quarterback, you might end up with Zach Wilson. Okay, which newsflash, I'm pretty sure that guy just sucks. So not a huge fan if Pittsburgh goes that route. I would prefer to see something more like a Jameis Winston type of move. Um, Maybe even trade for Jimmy Garoppolo, giving up a one pick. I would do that. Jimmy Garoppolo has enormous value in this league. Ultimately, I think the 49ers will hold on to him. But Big Ben, thanks for the memories. It was a hell of a career. We'll send you off tonight. Thanks for checking us out, everyone. It's the podcast. Tell your friends. We're everywhere, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Appreciate a review, a five-star review. Anything that you have to say about the podcast, please let me know. Definitely want to make this enjoyable for you guys. Love doing this every Monday. We're always talking NFL football, even some college football if it's interesting. New Year's Eve games, those were not, so we're not going to waste our breath on that. But definitely we'll talk about the SEC uh, showdown that we have for the college football playoff. If you have anything to say, hit up the text line or call line, 816-226-7483. I'll play your voice right here on the show. I will read aloud your text message, your question, comments, whatever you have to say about uh, the NFL or whatever sports, whatever questions you have, I definitely want to hear from you. Thanks so much. We'll see you guys next week.